With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode number 429 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, June 19th, 2022. Happy Juneteenth to everybody out there. And for all of you who are dads out there, including my dad, happy Father's Day to you all. I am Donald Wine, your host for this episode. We have a big episode, so we're going to jump right into it. But before I do, uh, Sam was not able to be with us this morning, but I do have the father of the group here, Jason Evans. Jason, happy Father's Day to you. How you doing? Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, it's a it's always fun to celebrate Father's Day once you've had little ones, and uh, I got two of them. So yeah, it's great. Awesome, awesome. I hope you have a wonderful day. We're recording this early in the morning, so uh, I'm not going to ask what you are doing or would have done on Father's Day. We have done a lot so far on this Father's Day, haven't we? Uh, we have, we have. But 
uh, my Father's Day this afternoon, I'm going to be playing softball with one one of my sons is is away. He works in Los Angeles, works for Disney, so he can't be here. But my other son, nice flex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my other son, who's in law school, is in town over the summer as he's interning at a couple different law firms, and he and I play softball together on Sundays in a in a softball league. Uh, so that my Father's Day is really great playing. Let me tell you something. When you're, when you're old enough to play softball with your sons, but not too old so that you can't play anymore. That's the, that's the sweet spot, baby. And that's where I am. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we hope you have a good softball game, uh, hit a couple of homers. It's, it's father's day, make them juicy. Some, uh, some slow balls. Uh, if I'm sure it's slow pitch. Softball. It's slow pitch. <laughs> yeah. Everything's a juicy As, it, fat, slow pitch. Yeah. yeah. I don't do fast pitch. Um, but I want to get into this episode because as we've been approaching the NBA draft, which takes place this Thursday, we have been reviewing uh, the, or at, at least reviewing the seasons and the just overall projectility, the overall projectability of all of these players that have entered the NBA draft. We have done Paula Bancaro, we've done AJ Griffin, we have done Mark Williams. And for this episode, we welcome back Jay Billis to talk about Wendell Moore and Trevor Keels. So we are going to start with the Wendell Moore portion of this interview. So here is Jay Billis and more on Wendell Moore. What is he going to do in the NBA? This is what Jay Billis has to say. All right, we're back once again with Jay Billis as we continue to preview the Dukies in the NBA draft. And we've made our way sort of down the line of, uh, of all the, the, you know, in terms of the Blue Devils, in terms of where we expect them to be drafted. We already did Paulo Bancaro. We did AJ Griffin. We did Mark Williams. And now, Jay, it's time to talk about Wendell Moore. Uh, we've, we've sort of gotten to the point where uh, guys are, you know, maybe first rounder, maybe not first rounder. Give me a really quick, first of all, you know, regarding Wendell Moore, where do you think he goes in the NBA draft? I think there's a, a, a decent chance he gets taken late in the first round, but he's probably more of a, a, a solid, you know, early in the second round pick because he's, He's one of those players that is not necessarily looked upon as a as a potential star in the NBA. Like he's a star college player, but would he be a star in the NBA? But he checks so many boxes on things you want in a player that you know you know he's going to be a, a good leader, mature, uh, rotational player, starter perhaps, um, and and he can defend, he can shoot the ball, he can handle it. Uh, he, he's, he's an all around, just really solid, good player, uh, in the NBA. And, you know, I think when, you know, schleps like me tend to throw around the word great a lot, and I try to be a little bit more judicious about it in the draft. So it sounds like when you say, Hey, he's a good player, that that means, you know, um, uh, you know, you think less of, of a certain player, but that's not true at all. Uh, Wendell is, is going to play, I think he's going to play, going to have a really good NBA career. And you look at some of the some of the players who played in the playoffs that weren't the primary scorers, and those teams don't win without those guys. And he's one. Of, I think Wendell Moore Jr. is one of those guys that uh, leads to winning. Like he's going to help you win, and and that's what. And it does. It's not about him. Uh, that that's a that's a a check in his box too. That it's not about him. Uh, now, he's someone who he did a little bit of everything for Duke this past year. I mean, there were times he was playing point guard. He obviously 
was mostly on the wing and, and could score from out there, either from three point range or by taking the ball to the basket. And, and we talked, you know, extensively about his defense, so many different college skills uh, in, in one player, but how much of it translates to the next level? Because it's one thing to be like, he was good. Like you say, at a lot of stuff in college, what do you think he can be great enough at that? It can be a, a difference making skill in the NBA. That's a good question. I don't think, and that's the good to great thing. I don't think he needs to be great at anything uh, in the NBA because he can stretch the floor and knock down a three. And you mentioned some of the other attributes that he has as a player. Uh, it's the combination of all those things that, that makes him valuable in the NBA. You can plug him in uh, to a number of different, different situations uh, because he can defend. He can, he'll stick his nose in there and rebound. And when he rebounds it, he can bring it up. You know, he can initiate, um, he can operate as a pick and roll handler. He's not a spectacular, he's not, you know, going to be number one on anybody's scouting report, but how many guys are in this draft? There, there, there are, you know, lottery picks. And then after that, it's, it's much the same. Uh, so I, I, uh, I like him a lot. I have him as a first round pick at the end of the first round, but, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not in a big crowd there. I think a lot of, a lot of people who look at this look at him more as a second round pick, but look at all the second round picks that have had long, that have had long productive NBA careers. Uh, you know, at the end of it, uh, nobody asks where you got drafted at the end of your career. Nobody really cares. So uh, just getting there. And I think he's going to do well. And the fact that he's gotten better, I think he was expected, you know, a lot of the Duke players these days are expected to, leave early and, you know, be NBA ready right away. And he wasn't NBA ready right away. Uh, Bancaro is, but, but, but he wasn't and, but he is now. And he's had more of the traditional route uh, to being a really good pro. Um, you know, he's, he learned as a freshman, came back, came back, all that. And, uh, and, you know, I think for some players, when you don't skip those steps, it can really, really help your career in the long run. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think he's one of those guys. And we've seen a number of them. You know, Draymond Green got selected in the second round. So what? You know, he's a four-time, whatever it is, NBA champion. And, uh, and has solidified himself as one of the best, you know, better all-around players in the league. Uh, so you talked about, you know, how much he, you know, Wendell has improved. I think especially this past year, uh, you know, everyone talks about how much more athletic he got. What, what, what was his NBA? I guess he didn't have much NBA stock coming into this season, did he? Uh, it, it's, it's kind of remarkable to some extent that we're sitting here talking about him as a guy who, who you know, has a chance to even be a first rounder when you think about the, you know, the way he had to remake his body and the way Duke helped him with that over the past year, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'd probably push back on that a little bit. Like, he was so well-regarded out of high school. The fact that it didn't happen at the snap of, of uh, his fingers out of high school isn't uh, historically unusual. Um, you know, like, obviously Duke did a good job, but, you know, I tend, to, I tend to push back on that kind of thing. I mean, I don't think, I don't think programs, uh, and they have to do it because it's college, you know, uh, and they recruit. So, you know, I'll, I'll go off on a little tangent to explain it. So, it, you know, back in the day, a media guide used to be for the media. You know, now the media guide is for players. 
and a large portion of the media guide is is their NBA players, as if college programs produce NBA players. When was the last time you heard how many NBA players a high school produces or how many all-stars an NBA team produces? They don't produce, I mean, all respect to, to Duke and Kentucky and all these places, they don't produce pros. They recruit pros. And they recruited a pro in Wendell Moore Jr. He just wasn't a pro right away. And there's a, there's a difference there. Uh, he was well-regarded coming out of high school. He's one of the top players in the country. And a lot of people expected him to be one and done. The fact that he wasn't doesn't diminish you know, his, his future. And, uh, and his right now is really good. Uh, but I think his future is really good too. It's just, you know, but I think we might've talked about this with regard to, to Bancaro and, uh, and Mark Williams, you know, you, you tend to talk about floor with players, floors and ceilings. So Wendell's ceiling is not as high as Bancaro's or Williams. Um, his floor is pretty high. Like, you know, he's going to do well. It's just a question of how much higher does he go? And, and you know, I think when a, you have an older player, sometimes we tend to limit the ceiling. And I'm not, I'm not saying that with Wendell. I mean, he, you know, look how much better he's, he's gotten year after year, and he's going to continue to get better. I think we talked about this too. Nobody ever said when Tim Duncan came out before sort of the one and done thing really took off. I think it was 97. Um, he, uh, you know, he was a rookie that had a, that had a lot to learn and he wouldn't be, we wouldn't talk about him that way now for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and, and Duncan continued to get better and better, even though he was amazingly good, uh, when he came out. And, uh, I, I still think Wendell is going to continue to, to get better and, uh, and improve. Uh, but he's got so many positive attributes and he's so well-rounded as a player that I think he has real value in the draft for, for any team that, that decides to select him. So one thing I wonder, you know, the place where he is uh, likely to go in the draft, as you said, it could happen late first. It could be early second. There, there's such a huge difference in the quality of the team that drafts you, it, you know, in those two spots, uh, obviously teams trade and, and picks can move around and such, but, you know, usually if you're going late first, you're going to a contender. Um, that probably has a pretty well-established, you know, eight or nine man rotation at least. And it's going to be tough to get playing time and, and their priorities are not going to be on developing their young players versus first few picks of the second round. You're probably going to a team that's in rebuilding, restocking, whatever you want, want to call it mode. And, and it's all about how can we figure out, how can we find the guys who can, can become rotation players on a contender for a guy like Wendell, which is the better situation? I tend to think for any player, the better situation is going to an established good team that that's winning now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you go to a team that is, uh, is struggling, rebuilding, whatever. And when you get to the middle of the season and it's not a playoff team, uh, players tend to play for their own numbers. Um, that, that happens. It is not a, uh, an anomaly that that happens and it happens a lot. Um, he's not a me first guy. So, um, you know, I think it would be better for him to be plugged in, but, but that's true of anybody. I don't know anybody that thinks it would be better to go to a team that's not winning. Uh, you know, the team certainly wants high value players to help them win. Uh, 
but I, I can't think of a player that wants to go to a team that's uh, that's at the bottom and and work them up. You'd rather go to an established established organization that that you know winning's part of the culture. All right, I got kind of a weird one for you here as I wrap things up about Wendell Moore. Take off your draft analyst hat for a second and put on your Dookie hat for a moment. There were times this year, and you may completely scoff at me for saying this, but there were times this year where I thought Wendell Moore had a chance to come back for a fourth year and get his jersey retired. When you know, back when it looked like he was maybe going to be a first team all ACC player, like back in December or January. You know, he was he was knocking on the door in December of of being an All American. And, you know, the the season didn't quite work out exactly like that for him. And he, of course, has now gone into the draft. My question is this, as a Dookie, do you think we're ever going to see another Dookie who sticks around long enough and is good enough to get their jersey retired? I mean, never say never, of course, but it, it kind of feels like the best couple players on the team every year are going to turn pro and you're not going to get them back and, and you know, I sort of feel like to me, Wendell was last of a dying breed, so to speak, that, you know, that we even began to think about whether this was a possibility. And it was only because his first couple of years hadn't been quite as good as people had thought. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I, we're still sort of in the mode of wrapping our heads around uh, the one and done thing and how it applies to honors like that. Uh, because Duke has had so many players that if they stuck around maybe two years, they could get their jersey retired. And, um, you know, maybe a guy like Elton Brand, you know, should be in that conversation for a retired jersey. He's in the Duke Hall of Fame, and I think it was one of the first players that were, was early entry to, to gain that honor. Uh, obviously, when you are there only one year, you can put up amazing numbers, and, um, and, and you know, but they pale in comparison to the four-year players of the past. Uh, you know, Zion Williamson is one of those. He put up historic numbers as a, as a freshman. And if you were going to retire any jersey, you'd probably want to retire that one uh, as a one-and-done player. Um, we've had a, a – Duke has had a number of those. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, we're probably looking at a, at a point where you're going to have to be a Tyler Hansbrough type guy uh, I know Duke player, you know, Duke people might not want to hear a Carolina analogy, but somebody who's unbelievably good, but maybe not one and done good, that's going to stick around. And, uh, you know, is Duke going to have one of those? Probably. Um, and that, but now we're in the transfer era. Uh, things have changed. So maybe, maybe Duke and other places need to change with how they honor players. Um, and whether that's important, I, I don't know how important that is to, to guys now. Um, it's a, it, it's just a different era. And so I, I think the players are looking at it differently that, you know, that might've been a goal of a great player uh, years ago. It might not be a goal of theirs now. I don't know. I haven't taken the temperature on that. Um, but, you know, even if you go back to the way, the way we used to look at it, remember, remember when, you know, coach K wouldn't put up a, a banner if all the players hadn't graduated, but he had to change that because, you know, guys leave early. They're not going to graduate. Uh, they're certainly not going to graduate on time. Um, and so that had to change. And maybe this has to change too. I mean, you know, Duke's in charge of the jerseys they retire. They're in charge of the hall of fame decisions, you know, stuff like that. And uh, there, there are things I felt like, I think David Henderson should be in the Duke hall of fame. Um, 
And and here I'll, I'll give you an example. No argument. No argument. <laughs> yeah, I'll, but there are arguments on other people because when you start when you start looking at how decisions are made for Hall of Fame, the first thing you hear is, you know, how many times a player made All ACC or how many times a player was honored by outside external decisions. Um, and my view of David Henderson is, had he gone to NC State or Wake Forest or something, he would have been first team all ACC, he would have been the leading scorer, he would have been one of the leading scorers in the league. But he chose to come to Duke and he chose uh, to be a uh, characterized as a role player on a great team. And I think Duke should honor that. I don't think it should be an external, it should be based on external honors, if that makes sense. And same thing with a jersey retirement. You know, if a, if a player decides to leave early, you know, years ago, they, they went, Duke went to uh, kind of a player of the year type model. So if you weren't player of the year, you weren't going to get your jersey retired. Well, Grant Hill happened to be in the same class as Glenn Robinson. Big so dog, Glenn yeah. Robinson, big dog, took all the player of the year awards. Now, I think Grant was a better player, but that was an external decision. So by the criteria that Duke set, Grant would not have had his jersey retired unless he was national defensive player of the year. So what would happen if he were, you know, the second best defensive player and the, and the, you know, what people thought was the second best player, even though I thought he was the best player, you know, what do you do then? Now you're slave to external decisions. And I've never agreed with that because <clears throat> I don't, I don't know anybody Duke person or not that would look at Grant Hill's career and say it wasn't worthy of Jersey retirement. But that's when your criteria can hamstring you a little bit. And I, I don't I've never agreed with it, but nobody's ever asked. me. Hey, hey, Adam Morrison and J.J. Reddick. I mean, you know, Boom. yeah, Same J.J. Thing. almost didn't take I, he probably took one or two player of the year. But I think M Morrison probably got a, a couple more than he did. Yeah, right. Maybe. So if he had swept them, um, what are we going to do with J.J.? Really? You know, you're going to go all time leading score, really, just because just because you had, you know, some people, some writers and, and I'll respect the writers, but writers voting on it, you know, as, as smart as I like to think the media is and and uh, we're smarter than we get credit for. But but we shouldn't be deciding that stuff. Duke should be deciding. Jay, that was awesome. Uh, really interesting conversation. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate your insight on Wendell. Thank you. All right, and we thank Jay Bills again for his insight on Wendell Moore. So, Jason, I'm going to start by asking you this. When we talk about Wendell Moore, we've talked about him this entire year, and we've compared his numbers to one person, Shane Battier, the original Swiss Army knife. And when we talk about that, is that still valuable in the NBA? I mean, you would think that a guy of this, you know, who can do anything good to well, should be very high, you're highly regarded by the NBA, but it doesn't seem like, I mean, he's struggling at this point to figure out whether or not he's going to be in the first round or early second round. Yeah, you know, Jay talked about it, and I think it was a really interesting part of the conversation when he talked about, you know, guys being good but not great and uh, at different aspects of the game and, and how people look down on that. And, and Jay was sort of like, you know, I don't know why people think, there's something awful if you're good at a lot of different things and maybe not really great yet at, at other things. And, and he said, that's, you know, that's a great description of Wendell Moore. 
I, 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 on the one hand, understand why someone might look at Wendell Moore's game and go, okay, what's he going to do at an elite level? What is he going to do in the NBA that makes you, you know, open up your eyes and go, whoa, you know, wow. Um, but on the other hand, isn't there something to be said for, for a guy who just does everything, you know, competently, doesn't, you know, can't be exploited on defense, can be counted on to knock down a shot on offense, does a lot of things right. I mean, that sounds to me like someone who's a valuable contributor to your team. I don't think anyone's projecting Wendell Moore to be, you know, uh, a, a starter, top three player on an NBA team. Uh, I, I, on the other hand, I can see a future where Wendell Moore is a valuable contributor on a good NBA club doing a little bit of everything. And I, we, you know, Jay talked about it a little bit. We, we just saw in the NBA finals, teams need a lot of different players doing a lot of different things. You, you don't need a team full of stars. You got to have a couple stars to win for sure. But after those couple stars, you need role players. And I think Wendell Moore projects to be a, a really nice role player. And, and the fact that he can do a lot of different things says to me there are a lot of different ways he can affect your team in a positive way. Yeah, and I think that there's room for the glue guy on the NBA roster. There, honestly, there aren't enough glue guys in the NBA because when we look at the NBA draft, most you know fans look at the NBA draft, as you know, Jason, the first round, they better be a star. They better average 20 to 25. That's kind of like the mentality amongst the fans. If you're drafting someone in the first round, they have to be good enough to eventually become a star. But as we see, there's NBA, there's all NBA teams. There's three of them. It means only 15 guys can be considered, quote unquote, like the stars of the NBA on any given season. And the first round can have some of these guys that have, you know, long careers that do a little bit of everything that aren't going to fill up a stat sheet in some location, but they're going to do something where he can affect the game. I think that's the key here. And I think Wendell Moore is able to do that. When you look at his game and you just look at the, the first, the end of the first round, what's, I mean, a glue guy can fit in a, in a, in a team. And also it can be someone that you go after because maybe you have two or three stars already. Like again, Golden State doesn't need a, a, a ninth star, right? Like they have all these guys. Can a window more fit with a, a team like Golden State or a team that's really good that is just missing a piece here or a piece there to either win or defend, in Golden State's case, an NBA title? Yeah, I think he absolutely can. And, and, and it may be something that takes a little more time. Look, one of the reasons that I'm high on Wendell Moore, uh, there, there are two reasons. And, and you know, maybe we're getting into, uh, you know, we talk about the over-unders. Maybe it's time, Donald, to do our over-under on Wendell Moore. And I think we, we set it at 30.5, meaning is he, a, yeah, is he a first-rounder or not? The 30th pick is, is the last pick of the first round. Is he a first-rounder or not? And I'm about to tell you that I'm going to go ahead and say that Wendell Moore does get picked in the first round. And I've been, uh, most of our over-unders, I've done the under, or I guess the over, sorry. I, I've done the, the guy doesn't get picked quite as high as, as what our over-under number is. Um, and Wendell's the one where, where I think he goes before our over-under number. And, and here's why, and I have two reasons. One is he's young. And it seems crazy to say that about a guy who just played his junior year. But, but as we know, Wendell came to Duke sort of earlier, younger, than most guys in his class. Uh, as a result, 
now that he's a junior, he's really, he's the same age. They're, they're, they're some freshmen. Believe me, there are some guys who just completed their freshman year who are the same age as Wendell Moore. So he's still More young, older. even though he's experienced. <clears throat> but the other reason that I really like Wendell Moore, A, to be drafted in the first round, and B, to be a guy who can contribute in the NBA, is what we saw over the past year, which was a guy who remade his body, remade his game, became more athletic. A guy who, in his third year in college, figured out, here are the things I need to work on, here are the things I need to get better at, here are the ways I need to change my athletic profile, and then succeeded at changing those things. Guys who get better tend to keep on getting better. Guys who have that kind of work ethic and the ability to, you know, re reshape aspects of the way they play the game. I, I want, I want a team full of guys like that because that's, that's what I want in my NBA club. I want a club that's constantly progressing, constantly improving. And Wendell Moore to me just fits the bill to a T uh, of a, of a guy like that. So that's why I like him to go someplace late there in that first round. What, what do you think? This is difficult for me. I, I do think, um, and maybe this is, you know, do color glasses on, but I don't care. I, I do think that he gets picked in this first round. I look at the last portion of the first round. Um, 27th pick is Miami. I think he'd fit in great with that team. Again, they don't need a lot of star power. They just need someone to help them in some of the, you know, fill in some of the cracks. He can they do got that. a lot of they got a lot of wings already, though, man. Man, they are That's full true. of wings. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but you know, this offseason is supposed to be kind of volatile for him because they they have a lot of contracts that could be moved around. A lot of things can happen. Golden State, they also have a lot of wings, but again, he could fit in well there too. Memphis, a team that's young, a team that has a lot of, I mean, they have arguably one of the biggest stars in the league in John Morant. And but they have again, he could fit in well because not only could he fill in some of those cracks, but again, like you mentioned, he's as young as some of these guys on the team already. So he would be able to fit right in with that. So I'm looking at those three and I'm thinking one of them's going to take a flyer on Wendell Moore. And so I think that's the that's the thing. So if we're going for 30.5, is he a first rounder or not? Both Jason and I say that he is a first rounder. So we'll leave it there. Let's take a break. On the other side, we will get into Trevor Keels. What's his aspirations for the NBA? Where will he slot in? Of course, we hear it from the czar of the Bills creator himself. Stick around to find out. All right, we are back, and we will conclude our NBA draft preview with Trevor Keels. As mentioned, he is the fifth Blue Devil that entered his name into the NBA draft. He is one of the latest players to do it and also one of the last players to announce that he was staying in the draft. And so we hear from Jay Billis himself on what Trevor Keels needs to do to make it in the NBA, where his stock ends up lying, and what is so great or you know deficient about his game. So again, here's Jay Billis on Trevor Keels. And we are back with Jay Billis as we continue and actually conclude our NBA draft previews of all the Dukies that are in the draft. We now turn to Trevor Keels. And Jay, I just want to start with this. Uh, we just go back to a couple of weeks ago. Trevor Keels is one of the best or the last players in the country to declare his eligibility for the NBA draft. and 
He was one of the final players to announce that he was staying in the draft. I know this was a difficult decision for him. So from your chair, I don't, and you probably don't have a lot of inside information, but what do you think was being told to him that made that decision so difficult? Well, I mean, I think it's a difficult decision for anybody, even if you're a, a lottery pick. It seems like a no-brainer, but um, at that age, sometimes coming back to school is, is incredibly attractive. Uh, but it's really attractive, especially in today's day and age, when you're at times judging yourself by your peers. You know, when, when I was coming out of, out of high school and college, you know, the, the people judged themselves by, well, this guy just got named McDonald's All-American. I'm better than he is. Or this guy's All-American. I'm better than he is. You know, stuff like that. Or I'm just as good. Um, now, this guy's going into the draft. I'm just as good as he is. Um, there's a different weight on the shoulders of, of young players now than there used to be. So that, that's, that's been an adjustment for us old guys that, uh, that remember the way it used to be. Um, but, you know, Trevor's, a, I think, a first-round pick, but a late first-round pick. There's a, a fair possibility he goes in the second round. Part of me uh, in my old brain says, you know, if you're not a first-round pick, go back. But look how many second round picks do extraordinarily well and, you know, sign big contracts and have great careers. I mean, it's, it's not it's not horribly unusual. So um, he's a young player that has a lot of potential to be outstanding. And uh, but, you know, it, it's more of a crapshoot as you get down into the late first uh, as to how players do uh, when they get into the NBA. Um, some of them do extraordinarily well. Some of them don't do quite as well. But, you know, you're, you're sometimes not talking about uh, whether they're going to, you know, it's more, are they going to kill it in the NBA or just be in the NBA and, and do well? And, uh, you know, if you're in the NBA, uh, you're, doing, you're doing pretty well. And I think he's got a chance to be in the NBA for quite a while. Yeah. So now that he's in the draft and we hopefully will hear his name called as early as possible uh, this coming Thursday, what are some of the qualities that you think teams are attracted to uh when you see trevor kills play just his athletic profile he's so uh athletic strong powerful uh he's got the build of a linebacker and early on in the season when he put up i think it's 25 against kentucky you know you're just salivating uh and but he had his ups and downs like like most freshmen do even super talented freshmen have ups and downs and uh and he had some of those but uh he's got a lot of ability and uh, but his athletic profile is what sticks out uh, first is is you're just, you know, he's he's really competitive. Um, he uh, he goes after people uh, on both ends of the floor. You know, I still think he can improve as a defender, but he can shoot it very good in transition, uh, very powerful and very powerful. putting the ball on the floor and he can handle it. You know, he can play he can initiate as a essentially as a primary handler and he can play off the ball as well. Uh, he just needs to refine his game. Uh, and, but he's in, a, he's in a big crowd of players that are going to refine their games from now to, to later on in their careers. He's still really young. So going back to the season uh, for Trevor Keels, I, I think there was a pivotal moment for him, uh, and that was his injury to his foot that kept him out for a few games. I think before that, we saw Trevor Keels that could shoot the ball very well, and we had a lot of, a lot of great games strung together. His production was a little bit more erratic down the stretch after that foot injury. Do you think there's any concern from NBA teams having seen how that season progressed for him with that injury? 
I don't think so. I mean, if there are, the concern would be injury issues themselves, not, not how you came back from it. I mean, it's, I think sometimes when a, a player goes out and comes back, you think you're automatically going to get the exact same player and the exact same rhythm and all that stuff. And it, I wish it worked that way. Sometimes it does, but a lot of times it doesn't. And uh, it's really difficult to deal with that kind of thing in the course of a season. So I'm not as, as particular. I'm not as concerned with that particular issue. Uh, there may be some who have concern over it. I'm not one of those. I think you look more long-term uh, with the prospect and, and, you know, Trevor's got so many, so many things that, that excite you about his future. Um, that one sort of question mark raised is to me is not a disqualifying factor or, or something. If there's somebody in, in that range you like better, that's fine. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't shy away from taking Trevor over, you know, a minor foot injury that, that cost him a few games and maybe cost him some momentum or rhythm in the season. It's, it, it's sort of hard when the team's going forward um, to, to plug back in and have everything go, go smoothly. So we've talked a little bit about some of the qualities of his game. Let's get to a couple of the deficiencies, mainly his shooting um, being kind of uh, up and down, inconsistent throughout the season. When you think about it, what's one thing that you think he can work on now? If you were his coach, what would you tell Trevor Keels on what to work on to prepare for the next level and, and prepare for a long career in the NBA? I think it's mostly refinement of things. And I think you, you nailed it. He can shoot it, but it's a question of consistency. So refining his shot, shot mechanics, when he's getting it, preparation, all those things, um, those, those, that's, a, that's a journey, and, and he's at the beginning of it. Uh, so he, he'll be fine in that regard. I mean, how many, how many players can we point toward that we said, well, you know, doesn't shoot it, doesn't shoot it consistently, uh, and then they become very consistent shooters as they mature in the NBA. Uh, that's one area where, you know, I mean, maybe it was, maybe I should just use myself here, but, you know, you think about time, you know, years ago, you, you'd think he can't shoot it. And I've gone to, you know, he doesn't shoot it consistently. And I've like, well, he's, he doesn't shoot it consistently yet because I think he can shoot it. He's a good shooter. Um, it, but to your point needs to just refine that, that shooting consistency. And that's just going to take, you know, take work. And, and he's, he's shown that he's willing to put it in. He, he's a hard worker. We, we talked about the yet that you had uh, a lot of yets for, uh, for Mark Williams. I think we just call this the, the billis factor, the yet factor. Um, but I stole we talk that about- by the way. I stole that it, from Kevin, it, Kevin East. For, I heard he it from you. So, so I'm a, I'm gonna let you claim it here on the DBR podcast. Cause because we're dookies. That's what we do. Um, we, we, we look out for our people. But um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was on defense. And on defense last year, of course, you talked about his physical uh, physical attributes, the fact that he's a really tall, very physical guy and was basically bigger than most guards that he defended during his college career. Well, now he's going to the NBA where he's not going to be the biggest guard on the floor at all times. How does that translate? Do you think he's going to have any issues with that in the NBA, given that he may be guarding, you know, six, 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 seven guys uh, once he's at that next level? Yeah, he may have to guard guys like that when he, especially when he switches off, because the NBA is a right now is a switching league. I mean, they switch everything, um, so he's going to be guarding multiple players and possessions. And uh, but he's he's very good at pressuring the ball uh, with his strength. He can, you know, he can he moves his feet very well. 
so I'm not overly concerned about that. There are some guys that are, are longer than he is that make him a little bit more valuable. I mean, I tend to think that size isn't as important. Like, you know, you, um, you say, okay, he's six, four, whatever it's his length. That's the, the issue. And that's, that's true of, of every player in the league. They're, they're more interested in length than height. Height is great, but you're not blocking shots with your, the top of your head, you're block you know, you're blocking and shots and deflecting with your, your arm. So your, your length is more important. And he's not, you know, he's not this crazy rangy lengthy guy, but because of his, uh, his physical strength and athleticism, uh, I think he's going to, he's going to do just fine uh, as a defender uh, in the NBA. So that leads me to my final deficiency, I guess. And that is uh, at the NBA draft combine, everyone who does the measurable, so to speak, height, weight, you know, the, the agility drills and everything. Um, he did not do well with those measurables. His measurables weren't uh, the best uh, at that camp. Does that, how bad do you think that hurt his draft stock when you take into account everything else about his game that people may like or dislike? How, how big are the measurables when someone is considering one guy over another? I think they're important. And, you know, you go back to the length part of it. I'm not as concerned about some of the shuttles or all that stuff. Um, you know, when you watch him in a five on five game, you're kind of wowed by his athletic profile. Um, you know, you kind of go back to, maybe the Kevin Durant thing when he couldn't bench 180 pounds and, you know, we all had our hair on fire over that or you guys did. I don't, um, but because I don't have any hair, um, but you know, it's not a bench press contest. And I don't, you know, after he got in the NBA, that ever get mentioned again, except, except to say how stupid were we to focus on that for any amount of time. It doesn't, that doesn't matter. You know, even when we talk about Gonzaga's uh, Chet Holmgren, you know, his body is not an issue. He's going to be fine. And uh, the game's changed. Um, you know, maybe if you if you put Trevor Keels back in the 90s, you go, hey, he's built for the NBA, you know, the physical NBA, even though it wasn't as physical as people make it out to be. It was more physical than now, but it wasn't it wasn't like a, a fist fight every game. Vinny John- he reminds me of Vinny Johnson, you know, a little bit. Yeah, we've talked yeah, about a little that. bit the way he's built. Yeah. Um, and if he can ever shoot it like Vinnie Johnson, then he's, he's going to be fine. Vinnie Johnson could have played in any era. Um, but I think he, I, the measurable question is really a, a good one. Um, I think it, that depends on the person. And there are some that, that may put more weight to it, others that, that don't want to get too caught up in it. I remember a, a years ago, a, a really good NBA scout, a good friend of mine, told me, don't, don't be too seduced by athleticism. Uh, so you hear that. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, how does he play? You know, don't be, don't be seduced by that, but then you don't want to ignore the, the, the combine numbers and the athletic numbers, but at the same time, you don't want to get too wrapped up in them because when you watch Trevor in five on five, you're, you're wowed by, by his athleticism. Um, now if you can see on film that, Hey, he's not doing this, not doing that. And the combine numbers match up to what you're seeing on the floor. That's one thing. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not too wrapped up in that. Uh, you, you, you know, we've all seen him play enough to go you know, before the combine, you're going, man, that dude's an athlete. And after the combine, uh, you know, if he didn't perform as well in one, one task over another, I don't think that's dispositive of the issue, but, but it, it sort of depends on the person who's processing it that uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a complete picture issue rather than a, than focusing on one data point. And if the combine, if you want to focus on that one data point of the combine, 
um, you know, it's sort of, I sort of go back to like Michael Lewis and Moneyball when, when um, scouts, baseball scouts were, were, they were, they were telling them, Hey, don't, don't get too concerned about the 500 foot home run. It's the total package. You know, if, if that's all you remember about a player that you're wowed by that, you know, how many, how many home runs does a guy hit? How many times you get on base? What's his on base percentage? Stuff like that. Um, same, I think it's the same issue with, with Keels and with anybody. So as we look forward to Thursday in the NBA draft, uh, I mean, I'm not going to get into predictions, but as you look at the late first round, early second round, is there a type of team in the NBA that you think Trevor Keels will blossom in? Or, or is this, is this a, a case of Trevor Keels is going to have to begin his career in the G League and kind of work his way up? Well, he could be in the G League. There are a number of players that could. You know, Wendell Moore Jr. could be in the G League. The G League used to be seen by, by some as a negative. And it's not. It's just a, a, a part of development. You know, you could look at it the same way. If a player went back to school for another year, you know, you're not going to look down on that. If you spend a year in the G League, so what? Uh, you know, it's about overall development as a player. So if you go to a really good team and, and you're just going to sit there for a while, uh, the G League is a, is a good way to, to get reps and play. Um, so, you know, it, it goes back to, I think every player would rather be on a better team and a better winning organization. Um, that, that's, that's the best thing for just about any player. Um, but if, if you're expected to be a load carrier right away, maybe there's some ups and downs, but a lot of, you know, if you're not on a winning team, a lot of what you're doing is going to be an anonymity anyway. So what difference does it make, whether, you know, it's in the NBA or the G league, um, that that's just a mental hurdle that other people have to get over really. And, and as we wrap up with this section of Trevor Keels, you know, again, not a prediction. What, what do you think could be? his ceiling in the NBA? Are we looking at a guy that's going to have a long career or are we thinking that he could be an elite at some point, an all NBA player or something like that? What do you think is the ceiling or could be the ceiling for Trevor Keels? I think with just about any player, when you're looking at late first round uh, into the second round, you're probably not talking about star potential uh, or, or looking at a player with star potential. You're thinking about rotation starter, um, rotation player starter. And you don't want to put a ceiling on that. I mean, Trevor can be a starter in the NBA. Um, I don't doubt that for one second. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, you know, look at some of the former Duke players, whether it's Tyus Jones or whomever, um, guys that got taken late first, early second, that have, have stayed in the league and done, done well. You know, we're not reading headlines about them but they're signing big contracts and playing well in the league. And, uh, and that's probably, probably uh, not, not definitive, but probably where Trevor projects. Um, but, you know, if you take away the injury, maybe he has a better year and he's looked upon in a, in a he's higher regarded. Um, but he's, he's at the starting blocks of his, of his basketball life. Uh, he's not, he's not, you know, mid race or late race, you know, with other, with other players, you have more of a feeling that, you know, and, uh, and with Trevor, it's more of a, a maybe, but, but the, the positives are, are there. And uh, so you, you don't want to, you don't want to put a limit on it um, because he, he is a really good player. And look, I mean, we've had it. 
how many uh, Miami this year goes to the the conference finals and they had eight undrafted free agents on their team, eight undrafted players. And uh, uh, so, you know, how do you process that? There, there are a lot of guys out there that can really play and they only draft 60 of them. And once you get to the second round, you know, some of the decisions are head scratchers. You know, they may draft a foreign player and park them overseas. There, there are all kinds of reasons. They, they, they may have salary cap issues that they don't want to, don't want to take somebody. It, it happens all the time, and it's not necessarily reflective of the player, but more of the of the team needs and and what they need to do with their with their salary cap. Hey Jay, uh, first of all, obviously, thank you so much for all that you've given us about the Dukies and the NBA draft. I, I want to go back to college basketball if we can with you, just for a quick heartbeat. In the past, you know, week to ten days, I guess about a week ago, we we got news that the Duke roster has kind of filled out with Jacob Grandison from Illinois. Um, as a college basketball analyst, you uh, almost certainly know more about him and his game than we do uh, because we mostly only watch Duke and you watch a lot more ba- college basketball than we do. Tell me what you think about the, the Duke roster heading into next year, specifically the addition of Grandison and what, what it means for Duke. Well, with Grandison, you've got a player who's been there before. So uh, I think John Shire has done a really good job of balancing the roster with uh, experience and guys that can be plugged into different roles, different situations with over, you know, some overwhelming young talent. So you got the number one recruiting class uh, of, of incoming freshmen, and then you've got some really good um, solid experienced players that, that can be plugged in with those guys and help lead those guys. Uh, the, the, the one issue you have, and it's inescapable now is that everybody is new. And so everybody has to be, you know, conditioned to John Shire's way. In fact, John is new in a way. Um, even though he's been at Duke for, for nine years in his system, I think it is. And, and he's, he's been in the program seems like for, for all of his life. Um, you know, he, he's new in the role. Um, so there, there will be a newness to everything, but, uh, but the amount of talent that's going to be there is certainly going to help, help ease that transition, uh, because they're going to, nobody's going to doubt Duke's talent. Uh, it's just a question of blending it and, uh, and Duke's not going to have to rely all on, on young players. It's not like they're going to have to start five freshmen and that's going to be the end of it. Uh, now they have, they have some experience around those guys. They have, you know, they have, uh, uh, you know, Jeremy Roach coming back, which is really important. Like Jeremy wrote, we could look back at the end of, of the 23 season and say the most important player on Duke's team was Jeremy Roach because of, of the leadership he he'll show. I believe he'll show uh, as having been there before and been at Duke before, because these other older players, you know, they've experienced it before, but they haven't experienced that Duke before. And so that that's going to be part of the, the development process of the team is, is blending all that together. And, and I think Roach can be the linchpin of all that. A lot of folks um, feel like the Duke team is now top five, certainly top 10. You agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, look, I, I mean, I can sit here and, and act like I know and I don't um, because there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of thought you know, more toward October, you know, it used to be in years past, you know, maybe 15 years ago that the buzzer went off at the final four and you knew who the top 10 was going to be. 
And now you have no idea. So when they put these, you know, and I've probably been part of it, when they put these, you know, way too early top 25s out as soon as the final four is over, you're like, what is, what, what is this? Like, who knows? <laughs> At least you they don't know who's coming back. <laughs> yeah, you don't even know who's coming back. You don't know transfers. You have no idea. I mean, I mean I, talk do- about throwing stuff against the wall. We, we don't, we have no clue. But it's entertaining and it's fun to think about. But, you know, North Carolina, you know, I, I wouldn't have put North Carolina in the top 10. And then they get most of their guys back. They bring Pete Nance in from, uh, from Northwestern. And, um, you know, who knew, who knew last year that Brady Manick, even coming in as, as such a good player from, uh, you know, from Oklahoma would, would be all that. And he was. Uh, for North Carolina. So uh, there's still a lot of I don't knows. And maybe that maybe that adds some additional intrigue and excitement. Uh, you know, there are television executives that would tell you that that, you know, not knowing who's coming back kind of hurts basketball. And maybe it does uh, with, with fan interest, especially among young people. But, uh, you know, that's the way it is. We better get used to it because it's not going to change. Well, Jay, we appreciate your insight, not just on the Dukies that are to come, but also the Dukies that are in, entering the NBA draft. Uh, and we will find out their names being called this Thursday uh, on ESPN. We will see you on our TVs uh, on that night. But again, thank you so much for being a part of this over the last couple of weeks. We really appreciate it. And of course, as we record on Sunday, June 19th, happy Father's Day to you. Happy Father's Day to you guys. Thank you for having me always. All right, Jason. And before we get into that, again, thank you to Jay Billis for coming on over these last couple of weeks and really just, you know, spilling his knowledge about all of these five Blue Devils who are eligible for the NBA uh, this Thursday. We really appreciate him being on and taking so much time uh, to be with us. I mean, I mean, think about it. This guy has so many people calling his name, trying to uh, get him on an interview or anything like that. And Jason, he took time, uh, a lot of time over the last couple of weeks to hang with us. So uh, again, Jay, we really appreciate that. Um, Jason, Trevor Keels, what do you make of his chances to be drafted? I mean, first of all, to be drafted in the NBA draft, I think we expect his name to be called, but what, what do you think about his prognosis? Is he going to be a guy that you think is going late in the second round? Or is this guy, you know, is someone going to take a fire on him based on his physical attributes and all the things that we know he does so well? Man, Trevor Keels is one of the tougher projections for me. And, uh, you know, again, sort of like Wendell Moore, we went ahead and we set the first round. 30.5 is our over-under number on Trevor. And I'm going to go over, as in I think he goes in the second round. I think he does not go in the first round. But but it is a, a really difficult call because if you're a team looking at Trevor Keels and you watch that tape from the Kentucky game, you just go, wow. Uh, I mean, you know, if I get a player like that, that's a special player. That's a guy who gets to his spots, uses his physical frame to overpower guys. And and uh, I think his physical frame will allow him, maybe not immediately, but at some point will allow him to overwhelm uh, even NBA, you know, physical guards. Uh, so you go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a dude I want on my team guy, a guy who can take it to the bucket, finish through contact, um, draw, draw contact and, 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 you know, get to the free throw line. The things that we saw in Trevor Keels that, that left our jaws on the floor against Kentucky, but 
you know, your tape is also going to include a lot of games where he was one for five on threes and every single one of those five threes he took, he was wide open. And, uh, you know, I, I've looked at, they're, they're, you know, these, these folks who go and they videotape the workouts for NBA teams and, and the pro days and all that other kind of stuff that players have um, as they're preparing for the draft. And I've watched a lot of those of Trevor Keels and I never see a run of like him hitting four, five, six, seven, three quarters in a row. Now in all these, in all these tapes, you're unguarded. So, you know, it's, it's not like you're doing it against, um, uh, you know, defensive competition. So that's why guys are able to somewhat go off in these tapes. But, but when, whenever I see the tapes of Trevor, there's always lots of edits of him taking three pointers. And, and if I was an NBA team, I would be very worried about his three pointer and how quickly or if it ever develops to the point where it's a reliable shot. God, you know, can you be, and the question for Trevor becomes, can you be an effective NBA two guard, which is his position? He, he's, he, he does not have the size to play small forward in the NBA. And even if he did two guard and small forward are fairly similar, but do you have, can you be an NBA wing if you can't hit, 30, 32% of your three pointers. Uh, I, I, and I think you only can, if you're going to be so dominant at taking the ball to the basket, you know, there are a couple of guys that, that, that we could probably name who are so great at getting into the lane and getting to the rim that you're like, ah, yeah, he can't shoot that great. Russell Westbrook, you know, Ben Simmons. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, and I don't think Trevor is so great at those other things that it overwhelms these questions about his shooting. Uh, and, and then obviously we come back to, you know, you asked Jay the question about the combine and, and these measurables. And, uh, and it's not just that Trevor didn't measure out in the agility drills. It's that he wasn't that long and he had a high body fat percentage. And it wasn't know, that as explosive as, as we see, right? Like, because yeah. again, Jason, like the measurables are one thing, right? We see the eye test and then we see the measurables. I saw a very explosive player at Duke University by yeah. the name of Trevor Keels, but the measurables don't highlight that. And it was, was it a bad day? Maybe. Or was that a sign? And I think that's why I asked Jay about that question about how important is that? Because, you know, if you have a bad day, can that affect? Uh, I mean, honestly, it affects the millions of dollars that could be coming into your bank account in the next couple of weeks. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting in the measurables. Yeah. And, and Jay talked about, uh, you know, the, the, this notion of the eye test versus the measurables and, and, and you get the, you get the feeling that he scoffs at least a little bit at the measurables that he thinks the eye test is more important. And I don't disagree with him, but all that said, you know, back to our question about Trevor Keels, I, I, I think Trevor's going to be one of those guys that, that to me, they're just too many questions. And, and I think he's going to slip a bit. Um, I won't be shocked if he doesn't go until the 40s. Now, I'm not saying like 48 or something like that. I think probably, oh, 42, somewhere in that kind of ballpark. But I don't think he's going to be a first rounder. There's a chance. All it takes is one team falling in love with you. But, but I think probably he goes around 40. And, and by the way, that's not bad. He's, I think he will still get a guaranteed contract, probably like – a two-year guaranteed deal. If you go, you know, like 40 to 44, 45, you're looking at probably two years guaranteed at, 
uh, you know, around a total of around two point something, two point two, two point four million dollars total. I mean, amazing money, life changing money. No matter you know, no matter what happens for you, and he's already got endorsements too. I mean, he got yeah. the, he had the Therabody commercial, so I mean, he has that. Jason, I want to go back to his, what we discussed a little bit earlier because I, I think you know the biggest question, obviously, is whether he can be consistent with shooting. I think the most intriguing question is can he guard guys bigger than him? Because as I you know explained to Jay, and Jay knows this as well, and you know, like he guarded a lot of guys that were smaller than him in college. And in the NBA, he's going to be guarding a lot of guys that are his size or bigger. There's not very few guards that are smaller at this point in the NBA than Trevor Keels, or at least shorter, I will say. A lot of guys are smaller because this dude is, is physically imposing. Um, but because of that, his defense was great on guys that were smaller than him because he could physically impose his will on them get the ball, go to the other end. And again, he's very, very good in transition, which you're going to need in the NBA. But can he do that against a 6'6 shooting guard? Can he do that against a 6'8 wing? I mean, that's the question that I have. I think he can, but I think that's the learning curve. If he can show that, yo, I can guard anybody on this court that's bigger than me, smaller than me, whatever you, whoever you want me to be in front of, I can, I can guard them and get steals and get to the other end and, and lay it in or dunk it. I think that's where he gets into the NBA quicker than if, uh, you know, his shot can come along a little bit slower if we needed to, if he's able to do that. Because again, I think shooting is one way to keep you in the gym, but defense is a great way to keep you on the floor. And if you have great defense in the NBA, people will take chances on you and put you on the floor because the rest of it could come along. So Jason, I turn to you for this question and I'm switching it up a little bit. Before we started this, we had our over-under at 30.5. I think both of us think that Trevor Keels is going to be drafted in the second round, so I'm going to amend our over-under a little bit to 40.5. Do you think he gets drafted before the 41st pick, or do you think he's drafted after the 41st pick? Uh, now, I, I, I think that's a 50-50. And, and I, I said a, a minute ago, I, I – my bet is he's somewhere 40, 40, 41, 42, somewhere in that ballpark. So I guess, I guess I'm over on, on 40.5, but, but I won't be surprised if he goes a little before then that's right. That's yeah. I think that's pegged right where he, where he falls probably in the draft. And by the way, that's probably not a bad place to go because he may be on a slightly better team than if he went really early in the second round. And, and it may be a team that, that has a little more patience. Yeah, so for me, I, I, I picked that for a reason that because I think he's going to go slightly under. I look at it, a very natural pick. Uh, I look at number 38. Right now, that pick is held by the San Antonio Spurs, who love taking projects like, like Trevor Keels and, and taking the time to develop them. They have a culture where they can develop players into becoming great players. Again, Trey Jones was a guy that we thought was going to be in the you know, late first round, early second round, kind of like Trevor Keels. Where did he end up? He ended up in San Antonio. He's doing very well for himself down there. So uh, I am going to go slightly under 40.5. I'm going to say that San Antonio takes a hard look at Trevor Keels with a 38 pick if he is not off the board before then. And I want to I want to make one thing very clear because we've talked tremendously about Trevor Keels and his decision. And uh, and you know I kind of now that I'm thinking about it, back on it, I, I somewhat regret that we didn't ask Jay specifically. Hey, you think Trevor made the right choice? Although I think Jay would have said, you know, it's up to them. Mm -hmm. uh, I, even though I'm sitting here projecting, we're both projecting he's going to go, he's not going to go in the first round. 
but we're also both projecting that he's going to get an NBA guaranteed contract. And in my opinion, if you're going to get an NBA guaranteed contract, turn pro. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, uh, as, as much as name, image, and likeness rights are worth, I think Trevor Keels will almost certainly earn more next year on whatever deal it is he has in the NBA. Even, even a two-way deal at this point is worth like 400, 500,000, somewhere in that kind of, like 450,000, something like that. So even if you just sign a two-way deal, and there's, I, I think there's no question Trevor's getting at, at a minimum a two-way deal, I think he's going to do better than that. Even if you just sign a two-way deal, you're probably doing better than most of the NIL opportunities out there. Um, so I, I, I've got no problem with Trevor's decision. There, there, there's an argument, a good argument, that if he'd come back to Duke, that you know over the, over the long run, he might have done better if he played his way into being a for-sure first-rounder. But there's no guarantee that was going to happen for him. And, and I got, I've got no problem at all. I, I don't, we're not here saying Trevor Keels made it. You know, when we say Trevor's going to be a second rounder, maybe even a mid second rounder, we're not saying Trevor Keels made a mistake when he decided to go mm-hmm. into the draft. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, again, when he declared for the draft, I think that was the first person out there to say like, yo, he's staying in the draft. He, he, it's a good decision for him. Um, it, the more, uh, the, the more selfish decision was him coming back to Duke because we would have loved that, but we love him as a player and we hope he does well. I think he's going to do well as an NBA player and hopefully he will be drafted very, very early either in the second round. And honestly, if he's in the first round, that's even better. Uh, I'd love, I'd love to see that happen for him and for Wendell and for all the guys that we've previewed on this here podcast. Yeah. And, and, and good for Duke because there is a possibility that Duke will have five first round draft picks. I don't think it's likely, but there's a possibility. Right. And if we do, I'm, I'm fairly sure no school has ever done that before. Kentucky's done four, yeah, but not five. Yeah. So, uh, and, 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 you know, by the way, Donald, I, I did want to, the, the thing we spoke to Jay about at the very end, you know, my question about Jersey retirement um, uh, and it was specifically was related to, to Wendell Moore, but um, I, I, I thought Jay's answer about that was really fascinating. And uh, you know, we're not going to have the conversation now, but I'd love mm-hmm. for us at some point on this podcast, we, Hey, it's the summertime and we're sort of casting about for different ideas and such conversation about whether zion williamson you know whether someone like that deserves to have their jersey retired i think it's a real interesting i think we need to get out of the mindset of four years and what did you do over a long career there are some guys that have such an impact that one or two years are worth it and i think a conversation about zion and elton brand would be a really interesting conversation to have so i just want to tee that up to folks yeah hey you know email us dbr podcast at gmail at gmail.com dbr podcast at gmail.com email us if you think that's something you'd want us to talk about and to give us your opinions on it yeah because i was going to say a lot of things have been changing as john shire becomes head coach uh i think that might be changing or maybe could change down the road with some of the criteria necessary to meet the jersey retirement or hall of honor uh requirements but again let's table that for another episode we are running a little late i do want to shift quickly uh, because we need to talk about Joey Baker, um, who uh, obviously transferred out of the program after graduating this year. Uh, he is going to the University of Michigan. Uh, he announced that he will be uh, rolling with the Wolverines for his final season of college basketball. Jason, your quick thoughts on him uh, learning from Juwan Howard uh, up in Ann Arbor. You know, it's a really interesting situation that Joey Baker's going into. 
your your thought when he decided to transfer from Duke was okay. He's looking for some place where he's going to get more playing time and more opportunity because there there were you know limits uh, because of the Duke roster on on how much Joey Baker was going to play. And and frankly, Joey Baker has been in the Duke program for four years and has never really had a huge playing time opportunity on on the team. Um, and, and no one for a second begrudges the guy for looking for that. And then you hear, oh, he's going to Michigan, which is another top-tier program, uh, you know, a club that maybe their aspirations for this coming season aren't quite as high as Duke. You know, Duke's, you know, preseason top five in most people's opinion. Michigan, I think, is just like a top 20, top 25 kind of team. Um, but certainly a really, really good program. You go, wait a second. If Joey was looking for playing time, there are other places he could, even other power, power six schools he could have gone to where he would get more playing time. I think it speaks to how much Joey cares about winning and how much that matters to him and how he wants to be a part of a program that is going to be a relevant program in the national stage. And he's willing to subvert some of his, you know, to, to hold down some of his own personal ambitions so he can part, be part of a, of a team success thing. And I think that's, I, I love that about the kid. And I, I really, I, I hope he's great at Michigan. I think the interesting thing for him is he's a, Joey's a small forward. That's probably going to be his role at Michigan. They bring in a kid named Jet Howard, who's a very highly touted recruit, young player. And that last name is no coincidence. It's Juwan Howard's son. And I think that Joey's going to find himself battling with Jet Howard for playing time next year. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. I wonder if maybe early in the year, you know, when the freshman's learning that perhaps Joey gets a little more time. And then as, as the, you know, young freshman son of the coach develops, Joey may see his playing time diminish a little bit, but I don't think Joey really minds if that's the case. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I, I thought it was interesting when he took uh, the visit to Michigan, because I was like, if he's going to Michigan to take a visit, that's where he's going to end up. Um, Ann Arbor is, uh, you know, as you know, I was born in Ypsilanti, right next to Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is a beautiful place, one of the most beautiful cities in the world to me. And it's one of the, it's a very special place. So I'm very glad to see him there. And honestly, from a Michigan's perspective, they're hoping that he can be kind of like Duncan Robinson was when he was at Michigan, just a three-point specialist who could just fill it up whenever he's on the court. And he's not going to get on the court 30, 35 minutes a game. But when he's on the floor, can he light it up from deep? and keep defenses stretched while other people uh, have breathers. So I think that's his going to be his role. I mean, Duncan Robinson played that into uh, the Miami Heat. He's a three-point specialist there. I'm not saying that Joey Baker is going uh, to the NBA if he has a, a superb season, uh, but I think the aspirations of Michigan fans are that if he can be someone like a Duncan Robinson who can fill it up from deep, then they have everything else in place for them to have a really magical season. And this Michigan team is built around Hunter Dickinson in the middle. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and Hunter Dickinson, by the way, first of all, he's gravitation. You know, when he gets the ball teams have to, you have to double him. You have to pay attention to him down there in the post or he will crush you. Uh, I think Michigan is looking at Hunter Dickinson in that post with Joey Baker on the wing. And Hunter, by the way, is is an outstanding passer out of the post. very, Very, very good passer for a big man. Um, the notion of Joey stretching the defense and giving space to Hunter Dickinson or Hunter Dickinson getting the ball and the defense having to collapse on him and then Joey being wide open. I'm sure that's what Michigan's looking at. Michigan fans are like, yeah, give me more of that. 
especially from the wing and from the corner, which, as you know, whenever someone gets the ball in the post, those are usually the two opposite that are going to be open. We know Joey Baker can hit it from the wing. We know he can hit it from the corners. He's very good at that when he it stretches uh, for us. But I do think that that is what they're looking at. If he can, again, be consistent from those areas, he's going to, you know, get, you know, 15 minutes a game. And he's going to probably, if he hits a couple of threes, two, three threes, that will keep Michigan in any ball game because I think they have a lot of guys there that can make them a very dangerous team in the Big Ten. But we will leave it there on episode 429 of the DBR podcast. Uh, again, the NBA draft is this Thursday. We look forward to reacting to what happens there. Of course, we hope to see, uh, hear all five names called. That would be Paulo Bancaro, AJ Griffin, Mark Williams, Trevor Keels, and Wendell Moore Jr. Uh, we hope to hear all of them called and we will react to whatever happens where their new homes will be in the National Basketball Association. But until then, stay tuned to Duke Basketball Report, the forums. Also, email us, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. So for the father, Jason Evans, uh, and for Sam, uh, Sam Klein and Essentia, I am Donald Wine, and this is the Duke Band to take us on. said jar of administrator that's nice. <laughs> my, my, i don't know where that came from <laughs> I, you know sometimes your 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 head is going so that you're like wait yep. i gotta figure out where am i going next and and your mm-hmm. tongue just doesn't get there yep yep this the is why i'm a mediocre freestyler for that reason <laughs> <laughs> and there's your outtake <laughs> right exactly <laughs>